The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Turn in your copy of God's Word now to Mark 10. Mark chapter 10. You know, I've prayed for you often this week. I've prayed for you often, uh, church. One is because I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful that God has chosen you, that he has sanctified you, that he is uh, preserving you and will keep you through to the day of Christ Jesus. I've prayed for you in that way. But I've also prayed for you, I've prayed for our church this week because I know that the majority of us have tasted the bitter side of today's passage. We've tasted the bitter side of today's passage. And the day in which we live, marriage is attacked and redefined. The day in which we live, divorce is applauded, it's celebrated, it's rampant. And if I were to ask for a show of hands, which I won't, but if I were to ask for a show of hands this morning of those affected by divorce just within, the, uh, in your, within your immediate family, statistics say that uh, the majority of us in the room have been impacted. In the same way, in the day in which we live, parenting is rarely valued as discipleship. It's rarely seen as uh, God's means for the, uh, for the care and the shepherding and the teaching and instruction of the next generation of worshipers. But rather, parenting either falls on one side or the other. It's either neglected and pawned off to others or it's turned into idolatry. As our sleep schedules, our kids' school schedules, sports schedules dictate our priorities and rule over our lives as masters that demand our compliance. And so it's no secret, right? Marriage is hard, amen? (laughs) Parenting is hard, but you know what? The Messiah has come to help. The Messiah has come to help. And, you know, we think that uh, the day in which we live, uh, that uh, things are, it's just way more complex. But our day really isn't all that different from Jesus' day. The standards are still the same. Our sinful inclinations are still the same. And so I've prayed for you. I've prayed uh, for us because I love you and I love God's word. And I want us to savor the beauty of God's way in God's word today, even if we've tasted some bitter bites along the way. And so let's, uh, let's go with Jesus here. Let's leave Capernaum where we left him uh, in our previous message, and let's go to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, shall we? Look at your copy of God's word, Mark 10, and we're going to read here the first 16 verses. Follow along in your Bible as I read today's passage says this, and he left there, that's Jesus, and he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. 
What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. This is God's word for God's people. Would you pray with me again as we ask for God's help? God in heaven, here we are. We're uh, your people. We love your word. And we need your help to understand today. We need your uh, help to savor uh, your words here. We need your help, God, to come to you now. So would you, by your spirit, do what only you can do in and among your people? We pray now in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. This is the next passage in our series entitled, Who is This Messiah? And uh, as I've said, the Messiah has made a way. In order for us to really savor the beauty of God's way, we must first, here's our first point, we must understand the issue. We must understand the issue. I understand that, uh, and I get that. This is kind of a heavy passage, isn't it? Like, man, I, my, my stomach is heavy. I've just eaten a whole bunch of food, and now we're coming in, and here we have this heavy passage. Well, in God's providence and his kindness, here's the next passage in our series that, uh, that God has for us today. And so as we get here, we have to understand the issue. Jesus, where is he? As we look at verse 1, he's heading southeast from where he was. You know, we're, we've been tracking Jesus uh, in his ministry through the book of Mark, haven't we? He's, he was just up in the northern region. He was teaching there. And now he's kind of headed southeast through this region of Judea and beyond, or the east of uh, the Jordan River. And so as, as we track him, it's kind of like one of those, uh, you know, like on the iPhone, it has the Find My app. You ever use that? I, really, for me, it's just the Find My Wife app, right? <laughs> I I'm come home, and I don't know where my wife is. Where is she? And so I look it up, and, uh, you know, majority of the time she's probably like Hobby Lobby or something like that and I find her there but it's a, we've been tracking Jesus in a in a different way the scripture records we've been tracking his movements we've been tracking his ministry and what's significant about his movements here is he's going to uh, as he's moving kind of southeast is he's following the route typical of the Jews of that day as they would avoid the region of Samaria you remember a few chapters ago when, when Jesus was going, he went through Samaria and this was, this was transformative. He was, he was uh, going through a region that Jews would typically avoid and he was doing ministry there, showing how the gospel is for all people. Amen? Amen. Now he is, as he's coming south, he is going that way that the Jews would typically go. And guess what happens as what happens anytime he travels? Crowds find him, right? It's, it's almost funny. As you look there at the end of verse one, crowds gathered to him again, right? And then it's, and again, what was his custom? What did he do? He teaches them, right? It's, it's kind of comical there. It's like, and again, and again. Yeah, we've got 10 chapters. Jesus travels somewhere. A whole bunch of people show up. And what does Jesus do? He teaches them again and again. And as is typical here in verse two, who finds him in the midst of the crowd? 
Pharisees, right? His adversaries, someone who wants to come and oppose him. And so these Pharisees, who are they? We, we've seen them over and over. The Pharisees are those ultra-religious types, right? Those that have the law all figured out. Those that have the Old Testament all figured out. Those that were the guardians of what is true and what is right and were the police force saying, nope, not this way. Nope, yep, that way. And uh, they are trying to uh, uphold what they think is the law of God. And this time, what is it? They have a zinger for him, don't they? They have a zinger for Jesus. Look at verse two. They come up and in order to what? To test him. They're trying to, they're, they're setting this trap and they're, they're saying, is it lawful? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? This is like another round of stump Jesus. Uh, they're trying to find something that they can get him in trouble, perhaps to uh, get him to say something that would condemn him by the Roman authorities. On this very issue is what got John the Baptist beheaded, right? As John the Baptist took a biblical stand for uh, what is marriage, and he opposed Herod, off with his head. So perhaps they're trying to trap Jesus in the same way that we can't stop him, but maybe we can get him to say something uh, that would sideline him. And so they are testing him with this question on divorce. And in order to understand the issue, we really have to understand the history. We have to understand the the time there because in Jesus' day here among the the Pharisees, among the Jewish people, there were two prevailing views of uh, what made divorce lawful. Everybody thought that you could. Nobody was saying that there there weren't any exceptions on the time. But there were two kind of prevailing views. It's very similar to like our uh, two political parties, right? We have have these two different climates and now there's like a politician coming and there's a town hall meeting and they're trying to stump him. And so they ask this question in a way that would try to get him either to land one way or another. But these two views really stemmed from uh, these two different rabbis' interpretation of Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24. Let's just look at it. I have it on the screen for you. If you want to turn there, you can. But this is where the debate really stemmed from. Deuteronomy 24 verse 1 says this, when a man takes a wife and marries her, If then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and then the verses go on, and if, 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 and this, and basically all it is is this is an abomination before the Lord. But where the debate came from is in that first half of the verse and the interpretation of some indecency. You see that there? You see that you can underline it so you can remember it if you want, but it was the interpretation of what does this sum in decency, and it created these views. The more liberal view interpreted it to mean really any reason whatsoever that uh, the man decided. If his wife burned the, the dinner that night, some indecency, she gone, right? If uh, she said something rude to his mama, she gone right? If, uh, he, if she didn't find favor, if she, you know, in her old age, she just became less attractive. Some indecency. You could write her a certificate of divorce, and she would be gone. That was one view. That, that was just very open-ended. Here is very ambiguous. They don't necessarily know. Here it was. The other view was maybe more conservative, and they took the some indecency to mean sexual immorality. 
any sort of uh, sexual sin outside of the bounds of a uh, one man, one woman, God honoring uh, marriage. That's what the other view said. And what's really interesting is that this type of sexual immorality was in the Old Testament and the laws you read Leviticus 18 and 20, these same things, if that's what this means, those same sins were uh, meant that you were cut off from your people or even put to death. It wasn't just a certificate of divorce, it was a death certificate if someone was caught in this sin. And so there's these two views and the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus and so what does he do? He takes him back to the word of God. He takes him all the way back to the beginning, to uh, Genesis 1 and 2, and he challenges their understanding of it. He asks this question here. Look in verse 3. He answered him. He says, well, what did Moses uh, command you to do? And they respond, well, Moses allowed. Those are two very different things. He says, well, what what does the command say? And they're like, well, he allowed Verse four, he allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce. And so he's asking, well, why? Why did he do this? And verse five gives us the answer, because of your hardness of heart. See, church, why did the law exist in the first place? Because our hearts are hard. The, The law exists because sin exists. Divorce is real because sin is real. And so we can say like this, every uh, divorce is the result of sin because sin is in the world. But let me just clarify something while we're here and we'll come back to it a little later. Every divorce is a result of sin, but hear this, hear this, not every divorce is sinful, okay? We're gonna come back to what exactly that means, but it is a result of our hardness of hearts, our sin being in the world. The law exists. These laws are there because of our hardness of hearts. And so we have to not only understand the history here, what Jesus is stepping into in the way that he answers, but we also have to understand the context. What has Jesus been teaching us in the immediately preceding passage? What has he been teaching us since uh, Peter first confessed him as the Christ? In the media, what did we just see last week? And see, this context, it, it filters into what Jesus is saying and is what he's about to say here. What, he, what he's just been saying is that we must, uh, we, we, we must not try to be the greatest, right? We must deny our desires to be the greatest, to be the best. We must just kind of trash this thought of, I'm always right. We need, to, uh, we need to kill or put to death our sin. And if we don't, if we desire to always be first, if we think that we are always right, if we let our sin fester, then our life is headed towards destruction. You know, it's also very interesting in Matthew's account of this, of, of, of this teaching on marriage, Matthew 19, the, the chapter right before is Matthew, what comes before 19, kids? 18, right? This is a good one, right? 18, Matthew 18, is Jesus teaching on forgiveness. And if you fail to forgive, your life is headed towards destruction. And so put all this together. If you desire to always be right, if you think that, or if you desire to always be the first, if you think that you're always right, if you let sin fester in your life, if you fail to forgive, then what is Jesus saying here? Then your life is headed towards destruction. And what else is headed towards destruction. Your marriage. Your marriage. See, the context teaching, if we fail to forgive, if we want to be first right and just 
dabble in our sin, then our marriage is headed in one direction. But see, understand this. Sin makes us hard-hearted and hard-headed too. But Jesus, he showed us a better way. He showed us the way to soften our hearts. He taught us the way forward to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow Christ into our marriage. To find yourself, to, if, we, if we take up the, the, the cultural mantra of finding yourself, of following our, our, our passions, of following your heart, they will lead you in one direction, away from Christ and into destruction. And so when we come to this, and we, if we make the, the lawfulness of divorce, the question is really to confuse the issue. It's to confuse the issue, which, which is why Jesus in his answer, he takes us vertical. We have to understand the issue that these things are here because sin is in the mix, because we are hard-hearted. But Jesus is saying, if that's the question we're asking about, is like how close to the line can we get? How close to destruction can we get? Where and when is destruction lawful? We've totally missed the point of what marriage is in the first place. And so I love where Jesus takes him. And in verse six, Daniel Aiken, he's a commentator and a seminary president, but he says this in his commentary on Mark. He says, the Pharisees wanted to talk about divorce, but Jesus wanted to talk about marriage and God's divine blueprint. And so that's where he takes us. See, uh, we have to understand the issue, but we also savor the beauty of God's way when we uphold God's design. That's the next point, when we uphold God's design. And so Jesus, he clarifies the question and the issue, and then he answers by taking them back, back to the word of God, all the way back to the very beginning in Genesis 1 and 2. Look at verse 6. He says, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And so what is he doing? Why did God create marriage in the first place? What, what, here's really the question. Jesus just gives us the uh, theology lesson on, well, what is marriage? Well, here's some points, five to be exact, about what marriage is. Marriage is, as God's design, it is first created by God. You might be saying, well, that's pretty obvious here, but from the beginning, God made. See, marriage, humanity, is created by God. He defines the terms. He sets the standards. It's not culture. It's not our own whims. It's not our own desires. And because God created us and thus created marriage, he, and God is good and right, then marriage is something that is good and right. Is marriage something to be worshipped or idolized? It, absolutely not. Your marriage, your spouse makes a horrible idol, but a great spouse. But as such, as created by God, it is something that he sets the terms for. It is something that he sets the standards for. Yeah, every culture celebrates it differently, right? We celebrate marriage in America and in Texas here differently than they do in, the, in India or in China or across Europe. We celebrate it differently. We celebrate it uniquely, but we uphold the sanctity of it because it is something that has been created by God all the way from the very beginning. 
marriage is created by God. But look at what else he teaches us here, that it is also between one man and one woman. God made them, look at the end of verse six, male and female. In the same way that we in marriage are created by God, our gender is also assigned by God. It is both assigned and defined by the creator. And so when a man and a woman come together in marriage, here's what it is. It is a beautiful display of the image of God when they come together. The uniqueness of females, the uniqueness very unique, really, of males. Um, not in the, like a superior way, but we're just kind of unique guys, right? Like guys, male, hum- yeah, you get what I'm saying. But when it comes together, it is on putting on display the beautiful nature, the image of God into people. Anything else outside of this, anything else outside of this is a distortion to the, uh, to the image of God. It is uniquely one man, one woman, not multiple men and one woman, not multiple women and one man. It's not two men, not two women. It's not one man and a girl. It's not one boy and a a woman. It's not a man and a dog. It's, It's one man and one woman. Any sort of deviation would be a distortion of the image of God. And so we uphold God's design in this. This is beautiful. He's created it. He's created it to be between one man and one woman. But look also where he takes us in verse seven as he begins, continues to lay out for us Genesis two. It is our primary human relationship. Marriage is our primary human relationship. It says this, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. You've probably heard it said, leave and cleave, right? Leave and cleave. And what this means is that marriage is our primary human relationship. What, in, uh, beloved, as believers, what is our primary relationship? With the Lord. That's right. Amen. It's vertical, right? It's vertical. But our primary horizontal, our primary human relationship, if you are married, is with your spouse. That the marriage bond is stronger even than the blood bond. And this is by God's design. And so praise God for great parents, right? Praise God for godly brothers and sisters, but there is only one we hold fast to. And that is our spouse. There's only one that can know us in the way that God has designed a husband or a wife to know his or her spouse. And to say this doesn't mean that we just like cast out our parents out of our life completely, our brothers and sisters, or even our children out of our life, but it does mean that we loosen our grip. See, marriage means that it's time to let go of mama. Marriage means that it's time to hold fast to our spouse. Parents, as, you're, as you grow older and your kids grow older, it means that you, uh, you let them go, especially as they get married, that now that bond is one in which we uphold. And why is this? Why is this our primary relationship? Well, verse eight answers the question because here it is. It's a divine union. It's a divine union, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together. See, the marriage bond is a divine bond. To be one flesh means that it is that two people have come together, not just bodily 
not just physically, but in all things. It means in our marriage, we are more than just roommates. We are more than just partners. It is more than just a legal status with some, uh, you know, some lucrative tax benefits. But it is a divine mingling of souls, one person has said. It is a divine mingling of souls of two becoming one, an interweaving of uh, desires, an interweaving of finances, an interweaving of goals, an interweaving of schedules. When you uh, get married, there is no separate anything. It is two becoming one, one in mind, one in thought, one in affection. And this doesn't mean that there's uh, no room for being you or no room for uh, your personality, no room for your desires, but they have now come together uh, for the benefit of another person and the glory of God. See, this is a divine union that God has brought together in a biblical godly marriage. But it doesn't end there. It is also, look at the end of verse 9, it is a permanent union. What therefore God has joined together, it says, let not man separate. Let not man separate. See, the only thing that would rip a divine union, because God has brought them together, would be, the only thing that could rip it apart would be our hardness of heart. What man coming and, and, and trying to tear this apart, but it's really our joy and our responsibility to uphold this in our own life, to fight for it. And oh, as a body of believers, as a family of God's people, it is our joy and responsibility to uphold the marriages of one another, of doing all that we can to come alongside, to help one another uphold the commitments and things that we have made before the Lord in our marriage. See, marriage is a divine, permanent union that displays the gospel. Do you realize this? That God's design is that your marriage would be like a gospel big screen, displaying the goodness of God to a watching world. This is why God has designed marriage. This is what he says in Ephesians 5 as he lays this out for us. As he says that this is a a mystery that husbands, as you love your wives, as Christ loved the church, laying down your life just as Christ laid down his life. See, men, we lead and we love our wives as we joyfully sacrifice our life, our preferences, our money, whatever we have for the good of our bride. And this puts on display the joyful sacrifice of Christ for his church. Wives, you display the glory of God, the beauty of the gospel in your life as you joyfully respond to your husband's leadership. As you lay down your preferences, your desires, your finances, your time for the good of your husband, you display the responsibility of the church, we as believers, as we joyfully respond to the leadership of Christ, his way, we follow joyfully, obediently, 
for the goodness of God. And this is what marriage is meant to be, y'all. This is a joyful thing. So our marriages then, they display the steadfast love and faithfulness of the Lord to a watching world, to our kids, to other people, to our co-workers. But here's the thing, that divorce then communicates a different thing about the gospel. We who are believers, our, our marriage then displays one thing, but if we go to divorce, it communicates a different thing very different thing and that's why in the solitude of 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 a house jesus here he discusses it further with his wife now he's not hiding it but he kind of like you can if you go back here to the passage the 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 pharisees have tried to trap him jesus takes him back to the word he just kind of like lays out just one two here's what marriage is and there there's no response from him right and it's kind of like all of us and you're like okay well that's that's what the word says right amen what else are we to do right and they, there's no response from him. But then they go back into the house and now Jesus is talking with his disciples as they ask him again. And so he takes us here to uh, what, is, you know, what about this issue then of divorce? But here's the thing. When we uphold and understand God's design for marriage as a means for our holiness, we see why divorce is so destructive. We see it for what it is. Why out of the hardness of heart to just divorce your wife for, you know, and then to marry another is really an act of adultery, as he says, right? If you just, for no reason whatsoever, it's an act of adultery. And though Mark doesn't necessarily include it here, you know, as we look at the scope of scripture, which I think is helpful for us, it, it warrants our attention to just elaborate a little bit on what is he talking about here. As I said a little bit earlier, that divorce is always a result of sin, but not every divorce is sinful. And so as you uh, read through the scriptures, as you read through uh, teaching and what Jesus has said and the apostle Paul, uh, divorce is permitted here in two ways, okay? Here's, just, here's what the scripture will teach. Divorce is permitted in cases of sexual immorality. Mark or Matthew 19, he adds a, a clause in there. And so there is, it is permitted for a believer to be divorced in cases of sexual immorality. And the scope of that we can you know, talk about, but it's really that type of sin that is outside uh, the marriage covenant. There's also a second one in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15. Uh, divorce is permitted in case of abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. A call to a spouse, if, you're, if you become a believer and your spouse does not, but they consent to live with you and you should stay married to them. But if you are abandoned, then you are permitted to divorce your spouse. But I want us to savor the beauty of the gospel in even these. And so the scripture does allow two uh, exemptions. But here's the thing. Yes, these are permitted, but it is not commanded. It is not required of a spouse, even though the hurt may be deep and, and, and you think beyond forgiveness. These are the sins that were that put Christ to death. These are the sins that can be covered by Christ where forgiveness is possible. See, this is the beauty of the gospel. Even though the sin is heinous, even though the sin is hurtful, and there will no doubt be some very, uh, maybe severe consequences for sure, but it does not have to be the death blow to your marriage. Christ has made a way, and Christ has shown us how to forgive even the most egregious 
of sins. See, God's design for marriage from the very beginning is for our holiness. It is for us to become more like Christ, for us to grow up in godliness. And so what God has done in his wisdom and in, in, uh, for our good is to put someone in our life so close so up close and personal to see things about us that no one else can see, even ourselves, to see things about us that not even our parents, to know things about us that even our BFFs can't know, to, to observe things that even our kids may not see, and then to point them out, to encourage us towards Christ-likeness, to rebuke us when we are sinning, and to, to come alongside us when we're weak. All of these things so that we can be more like Christ. That's God's design for marriage. See, if we come into marriage thinking that happiness is the primary goal, that this person is an object of my happiness, that God has put this beautiful uh, woman into my life so I can be happy, then marriage ain't, (laughs) ain't your game. But if holiness is your goal, of growing in Christ's likeness, of being sanctified, of embracing the joy of God putting someone in your life so close, then marriage is God's grace to you. It is God's grace to you and to you who aren't married, this is your pursuit just like a married person. See, what is the pursuit of all of us as believers? Growing in Christ's likeness, right? Of, of growing up in the faith. And so when we have that rightly ordered, when our goal is growing in Christ, you will then, here's the, uh, I don't wanna say the irony, but here's the real way to win, is that you will then be more happy in Christ as you are pursuing holiness than you could have ever imagined. That's not to say that marriage is miserable, right? That's not to say that you won't be happy or your marriage can't be full of joy. Because it is, right? My marriage is, is full of joy. I hope you'd say amen, right? Amen. But the goal is holiness. And so we have to set our expectations rightly. But if you don't want to grow, if you don't, if you're, if your pursuit is, you don't want to grow, then, then one, don't get married if you're not. But two, if you're married, if you are unwilling to grow in Christ, then your marriage will forever be hard. You will only want to get out when Christ is calling you to grow up. But here's the thing where Jesus takes us. The irony here is that, you know, we think we're so grown up. We think that we're so rational in life that we can, you know, kind of figure our way out. We can, we can uh, make all kinds of cases in our own mind for, about why it's okay to, to get out of, why it's okay that uh, I'm the way that I am and I don't need to change and, and uh, I'm not the problem in this and it's somebody else. Is that, you know, that Jesus is saying, well, really the first step to growing up, the first step to being more like me, the first step to coming to Christ is to come like a kid because we're not we fool ourselves to think that we are so mature when Christ is saying well you have to come to me like a kid would come to me and really the call then our final point is to come to Christ unhindered we must understand the issue we must uphold God's design for marriage and then the call is to come to Christ unhindered See, it's no accident that in verse 13 here, the immediate context after this is that they are bringing kids to Christ. It's as if to to really remind us that marriage and divorce have a profound effect on them. 
right? The way the health of our marriage has a profound effect on our kids, our divorce, there, is, there are not just innocent bystanders to our relationship. It's really a subtle reminder, but the lesson is even deeper than this. It's not necessarily the reason why it's right there, but it is a good reminder. But Jesus has some, uh, some words here in his rebuke of the disciples. See, look at verse 13 for me. They're bringing children that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuke the parents. And so what brings Jesus' indignation here? Why is he so upset? One, because the parents are doing the right thing, right? The first lesson is, is bring your kids to Christ. Introduce them to the Lord. The, uh, the, the lesson here is that even children can go to heaven, See, Jesus is indignant at the disciples rebuking these parents because he has a special mercy and love for children. And so parents, bring your kids to Christ. Let them see your faith. Let them see your faith played out even through your marriage. Let them see your daily walk with Christ. Bring them in on the joys and the struggles of following Christ. Bring them in on your desperate prayers uh, for them, for uh, your coworkers, for the uh, things that you are longing to see God uh, come through on. This is bringing your kids to Christ and bring them obviously to church. Bring them to the worship gathering. Let them see you live it out every day. Let them see that it is a priority in your life and let them see that Christ has something even for them. See, parents, introduce your kids to Christ. But also, as I said, the lesson is deeper here. The application is obvious to bring your kids to Christ, but there's also something subtle that Jesus teaches us here in verse 14, that young children go to heaven. Jesus saw it, he's indignant, and he says to them, let the children come to me, Don't, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And so parents, you can find comfort here, you can find comfort in Jesus' words here, that even your babies, and your kids that are not here, are now with the Lord. That the kingdom of God belongs to them. That Christ in his special electing mercy has brought them into his family. As one book says, that they, the title is, they are safe in the arms of God. That they, because they were too young to willfully, deliberately sin, that their sins are not held against them. And I think that we'll find when we get to heaven that we will find the worship center of heaven populated with a lot of little singing voices before the throne of Christ. There's some tender mercy in those words, aren't there? See, Jesus' words here are, are powerful for us. They're brief. They're, they're, it's, it's almost like this add-on here as we are in the heaviness of marriage and divorce and God's design for the family. And yet what he is calling us to in the tenderness and the, the toughness of, of marriage and parenting and all that is he's telling us to come to him unhindered. He's calling us like a child with complete trust in her parents to come to Christ. He says in verse 15, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And this is not a, this is not a, a plea, this is not a command for childishness. 
It's a command for complete, utter trust in the ways of God. To come to him unhindered by doubt. To come to him unhindered by fear of what others will think or whatever it's going to cost. It is that type of trust, that complete trust that a kid has in his or her parents. To say, your way is better. Your way is better. I don't know how to get there. We just made a long drive to to Denton. My kids completely trusted us to get in the car and to make that journey, which for them, you know, it seems like a day's worth of travel, you know? Like we got in a covered wagon and we were heading to Oregon and it took forever. But they trusted us. They didn't know the way, but they trusted us and they got in. We kind of carried them because we left early and they were sleeping, but isn't that true of what the Lord does for us? And in our marriage... You may not understand. As you see the way ahead of you, it may seem all uphill, but if you come to Christ unhindered, even when you want to get out, you will find that you will be safe in his arms if you do it his way. If you are even in your heartache, if you come to Christ unhindered, he will lead you through it. He will walk with you through it because he knows the way ahead because he created it. And any path that seems too hard is not one you have to walk alone because he's willing to walk with you through it. He's put people around you that will walk with you through it, but to go your own way in your marriage, to go your own way in your parenting, to go your own way in your life is just that, your own way. And then you're on your own. And who wants to be on their own? But see here as we look at a passage like this and we see it in the greater context of what Jesus is teaching than the the call to deny yourself, to take up your cross and to follow Christ applies perhaps nowhere more profoundly than within marriage and the family. See, the way to win in marriage, lose your life for Christ's sake, for the gospel's sake, and you will save it. See, there's something more at stake in our marriage than just our personal happiness, than our own personal fulfillment, than than your own feelings. It's the gospel's sake. See, the call to deny yourself, to lay down your life is a gospel call, to come to Christ, to repent of your sin, to turn from it, and to turn towards Christ. And the way that we do that, one of the most profound ways that we do that for we who are married is within our marriage. So we repent of our sin as our spouse points these things out and we see it and we come to Christ and say, Christ, help us. You want to win in your marriage? Then lose your life for Christ's sake and the gospel's sake and you will save it. My prayers for you will continue this week because they, our prayers are powerful, are they not? And because of this passage and the effect that it has, I'm sure there's probably lots of questions, right? Maybe you're like, but yeah, but what about my situation? Is it here? What about my, you know, this divorce? What about my marriage? What about this? What about that? Well, hey, you know what I anticipate this week? I anticipate some great small groups this week for us. See, that's where we ask these questions. That's where we come alongside one another to to answer these questions. So praise God for the people in your life, right? Praise God that we can hear the word of God uh, now and we can take the other side of that coin and we can walk this out with our brothers and sisters in the faith even this week, amen? Amen. But you know what we need to do? 
We've said we're here to uphold God's design. We've said that we're here because we wanna do things God's way. We wanna, we, we wanna savor the beauty of God's way and God's word. And so what could we do but respond by worshiping our creator, right? The exalted one, the one who is exalted over our marriages. Would you pray with me? And then we're gonna stand and sing. God in heaven, uh, here we are. Here we are as your children. Here we are as your people that have uh, been blessed because of you. Lord, and so there's, these, are, these are heavy words. The, the call is great. The cost is great. And yet the reward is even greater. And so as we're wrestling around with these things in our mind, as we are, um, are, as we are uh, desiring to be obedient, Lord, we worship you now as our creator, as the one who is exalted.